As to the hanging, it is no great hardship, for were it not for that, every cowardly fellow would turn pirate, and so unfit the sea that men of courage must starve. And Bonnie. There are few subjects more covered in the world of media than pirates. Why do these swashbuckling anti-heroes have such a major hold on our imaginations and on our media? Or is it that the general public has always been interested in the Robin Hood-style narrative? Is it that simple? Were pirates always only the scourge of the powers that be? Or did they cause trouble for everyone involved? Today, we'll be digging into the past of the adventurers who have explored the far reaches of the globe for the money, for the fame, but mostly for the money. Looking back on the ancient forms of piracy and onto the things that a typical person would not immediately think of in pirate lore. So grab your parrot, trim that sail, and get ready for another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied. Critical. Need to know. Information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping your remedial class. Hello everyone, I am Levi and welcome to the Remedial Scholar. Before we get too far along, I'd like to thank everyone for the reviews anywhere you leave them. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podchaser. Those are the best places to do it and they all help me out, which helps the show out. Uh, Hit the link tree in the description for all the socials and see pictures associated with all the episodes. And watch on YouTube if you would like to see reference images as well. And also share us wherever you can to whoever you want. And thank you in general just to everybody. Uh, All of your support means a lot to me. And that's it for the begging. On to the stealing of Assy Matey. A pirate's life for me, right? I'm Ron Burgundy. Uh, (laughs) This is going to be a fun one. There's there's so many good stories out there, interesting facts uh, that connect pirates to different things. And there are quite a bit of links that I think that can be made. Uh, that I think people miss when talking about pirates in general. So today's going to be a lot of fun and a lot of information. Uh, So much so that this is actually going to be a two-parter episode. We're going to start with the broad scope of what it means to be a pirate, where the earliest accounts come from, similar similar to how we did the War Dogs episode, moving through different time periods, discussing techniques and locations of various things, things that will get really interesting in the Middle Ages, you know, some northern invaders, hint, hint, hint. Uh, second part will be great, also featuring some really interesting stories that I found from Eastern Asia that I don't feel like it's talked about with pirates. And then also going into the Golden Age um, and colonization and how pirates intertangled with that. That includes the big name pirates, the big hitters. So there's that. And then after that, moving into modern pirates, Captain Crunch. No, 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 no. Captain Phillips type pirates. So there's a lot to cover. Let's get into it. When you think of pirates, I'm betting Jack Sparrow, Blackbeard, guys like them probably come to mind. Or maybe your gamer and Edward Kenway of Assassin's Creed fame is your jam, right? Big fan of that. But either way, there's so much more to it than that. There always is, right? Then that's good. It means there's plenty of fun facts to learn. Of course, piracy is really as old as the human use of boats and water, essentially. But what is piracy? What does it mean to be a pirate? A pirate is a person who attacks and robs at sea, according to the Oxford Dictionary. What do they know? No, that that seems fair. And it also certainly describes a lot of, like, Pirates of the Caribbean and those kinds of things, right? But the etymology of the word tells us that the history starts much further back than just that, right? 
The word pirate comes from Latin pirata, which means robbing at sea. And that word stems from an ancient Greek word, piratis, which was essentially a robber or brigand, who, uh, which is somebody who robbed people in the mountains or forests. So this definitely shows the baseline for pirates existed pretty far back, but how far back exactly? Like I mentioned before, the idea of robbing someone with a bow over water is not a new concept. I imagine it's barely newer than the concept of robbing somebody normally is. As far back as time goes, people have been taking things from others for their own benefit. In the early years of civilization with the Sumerians and other early, early fertile crescent adjacent societies, people used the word pirate very liberally. Well, not at all, but the translations point to a general feeling of piracy. It was also, according to one author, due to the fact that many of these tr accounts were transcribed long after they occurred. Um, one of the oldest known transcriptions of pirate activity comes from a clay tablet dating to 1350 BCE, which mentions uh, ships attacking in the North Africa area, and these ships, you know, were freelance, so there's no real master to them, they're not like an enemy force, um, but it seems that the coin was their only driving factor. And since major cross, uh, cross sea ships were not really a thing yet, Many of the pirating type of attacks would take place in shallow waters with the pirates holding around some cut in the beach or behind some rocks or vegetarian <laughs> vegeta they they hid behind vegetarians and that's how they that's how they snuck up on a lot of people people don't really know that <laughs> vegetation of some kind <laughs> uh, this tablet mentions taking precautions against uh, these water raiders which tells more to their nefarious nature right it is said that these pirates did not spare anybody and their targets were broad and that they were not working for anyone but themselves. Uh, later on, there are some clay tablets that describe uh, discourse between uh, Pharaoh Akhenaten and a vassal state, uh, a diplomat in a vassal state, which ranged between 1360 and 1332 BCE. I'm sure there's some great old school email <laughs> email behavior going on there, like the emails between a begrudged worker and their out-of-touch boss. As per my last email, please do something about the pirates. Thank you. But they did write about the troubles of piracy in these tablets, discussing some pirates were causing, quote, substantial disruption to regional commerce. No, I have no clue if that's what it really says, but I highly doubt it because they did not speak English. Most of those words were not around back then. Seriously, though, they talked about pirates uh, wrecking their trade flow, and the pharaoh took it very seriously. Stated that the pharaoh would introduce countermeasures and claim any of that and claimed that any of his subjects that are involved in piracy would be punished. Now there are accounts from the time of Ramses where marauders known as sea people started causing some trouble. Ramses III, according to some people, was the pharaoh uh, of the time of Exodus. And by that measure, he is also one of a few people mentioned in the Bible that we have physical evidence for, as in we have his body. Not me, I don't have it, but some people somewhere have his mummified body. And actually, like a lot of the pharaohs that they think could be the pharaoh from the time of Exodus, we have all of their bodies too, which is kind of odd, but also not super relevant to this, but it's, you know, just one of those things that I learned, so you're welcome. Anyway, back to the sea people. Uh, these were thought to be groups of different clans and tribes further north in the Mediterranean, not known specifically where these groups came from or what exactly their lineage was, but the best guesses surmise that they came from the European side of the Mediterranean further up. Uh, they proved to be fearsome warriors, conquering many of the kingdoms in the Med, all while being fairly nomadic in nature. They traveled with women, children, livestock, moving around, terrorizing the shores of the southern Med, 
At the same time, the Bronze Age was kind of collapsing, and Ramses was nervous, and un understandably so. Some kingdoms he was close with were falling, destruction, and limited advancement of life echoed in the various areas around Egypt, all while these damn sea people were throwing kingdoms like the Hittites around like children. And they tried to attack Egypt too, but they failed. They came through the Nile Delta, but were blocked from entering further, and then hammered by volleys of arrows from either bank of the Nile. It is, however, said that it was a Pyrrhic victory, and but the Egyptians did beat them, and they castrated the men, and then the women and children were brought in and assimilated into Egyptian life, which is kind of an inter interesting way to do it. An inscription in Ramsey III's mortuary temple describes it as this. They were dragged in and closed and prostrated on the beach, killed and made into heaps from tail to head. Those who entered the river mouth were like birds ensnared in the net. So, these are the kinds of examples of early piracy. Not quite the swashbuckling scallywag type that one normally envisions. It does point out something that I feel like gets lost in piracy in general. You are not destined to become a pirate and then learn the ways of the water. You are always a sailor first and then find opportunity for piracy. These people were great warriors on their own, these sea people, but their ability to traverse the Mediterranean before it was a super common thing was their upper hand. And that's something to consider as the tale moves forward, right? So we visited ancient Egypt. Let's let's see what the Greeks have got going on. Delta Psi Beta is having a mixer Friday at 3... Wait, hold on. No, that's the Greek frat from the movie Neighbors starring Zac Efron. It has no... <laughs> I just want to throw that in there. Uh, in the realms of myth, there are some places that just stand out. Places like Manoa and Crete, home of the king of King Minos and his Minotaur. The Minotaur has no real ball in this game, but I wanted to say Minotaur. So, you're welcome. King Minos, on the other hand, is said to have cleansed the sea of pirates for as far as he was able. That's a quote from something. <laughs> improved the wealth of his kingdom that's what his goal was myth also notes that uh his fleet held off pirates until a tsunami destroyed his ships around 1400 bce yet these instances are not really pirates in terms of the way we think uh or even uh think of today or even further back these pirates held no real difference from an enemy army so while the acts they performed were the acts of the that the solo bandits we typically think of would do they were often done in the name of war against another nation, so or civilization. So let's skip ahead to the times of Homer. There are quite a few re uh, representations of full-fledged pirates in Homeric poems from around the 7th century BCE. Even Odysseus got into some pirate action, uh, described in one passage of the Odyssey. We boldly landed on a hostile place and sacked the city and destroyed the race. Their wives made captive, their possessions shared, and every soldier found a like reward. Uh, again, this kind of describes just general war, though, at the time, not really st strictly only pirate type of things. Another poem by Homer, this one, a hymn to Dionysus, describes pirates kidnapping the disguised god, because, you know, the gods like to dress up and be, be mysterious back then. Uh, the pirates tried to tie him up, and one man was kind of nervous because the uh, willow twine that they were using wasn't really tying him up, and... He's like, hey guys, I think this might be a god, and none of his fellow crew members listened to him. Well, chaos ensues, and Dionysus released a bear and a lion in some sort of weird magic trick. And then for his next trick, he turns any man who jumps by fleeing, uh, flees by jumping into the water into dolphins. I don't know if that's a major punishment, because it sounds kind of cool, but, you know, I don't, I don't know god stuff. Dionysus spares the man who guessed correctly who he was. Uh, my favorite story from ancient Greece is the story of Alexander the Great and the pirate in a work called The City of God by St. Augustine. 
Now, this was written in the 5th century CE, so it's all seven to 800 years after Alexander would have been around, but this story, I think, was passed down and added to St. Augustine's book and not one of his original creations. Story goes that Alexander's tough on piracy laws, one such pirate, was brought to the young emperor and came face to face with him for his crimes. Alexander hated pirates. His followers, though, would hire them to control his vast seas following his death. In any case, uh, those would be mercenaries, right? But uh, the differences are pretty slight. Essentially, pirates worked for their own and mercenaries were hired out, much like privateers we will discuss later on. Now, back to the pirate. Apparently, this man, Diomedes, was cruel and notorious pirate. His rap sheet long, heavy, with all the raiding and torture. Surely he was to be executed by the emperor himself, right? However, Alexander wanted to ask him some questions, maybe to see what uh, made this pirate tick, or just to make an example out of him further. Who knows? Uh, pretty sure he was taught by Plato, right? So maybe, maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Alexander was asking these questions to this man, and one of the questions he asked was why he felt that he deserved to take so many things by force and steal things that were not his. Well, the irony was not lost on the pirate. He responded something to the effect of, you know, you condemn me for my acts with a mere few ships and handfuls of men, and that makes me a pirate, but you do the same thing with an army and a navy, and you're called an emperor. I can't tell you who the bigger criminal is, but if I had the tools you do, I'd be an emperor too. The balls on this guy. <laughs> I know the story is probably hyperbole and largely mythologized as most things from the Hellenistic times are, but holy shit. <laughs> that's a that's a response to give to the man the, like one of the few men who's just synonymous with greatness, you know, for thousands of years following his death. And apparently it worked. Alexander pardoned the man and was impressed with his boldness and insight. Uh, but it does raise an interesting point about the perceived morality of piracy, right? A few sailors take what they can to give themselves a good life, taken from mostly large empires, especially when it comes to uh, the pirates later on. They're seen as evil when they do heinous things, but no real worse than the sailors who fly, uh, you know, a national flag for the country they serve, right? Something to consider while trying to decide if pirates are a scourge or a hero. Now, St. Augustine himself decreed that it was his justice that separated the governing actions of uh, pirates' actions, right? Although the debate on that could be had forever. Is the government just because they're a government? Like, who's to say, right? Also, random fact, St. Augustine is the name of a place in Florida that has a pirate and treasure museum. St. Augustine had plenty of pirate activity in the 17th and 18th century. was also founded as a place on my birthday in 1565. So, you're welcome. Uh, you might be asking, what is St. Augustine the patron saint of? Pirates? No, but he freaking should be. Uh, patron saint of brewers, printers, theologians, and obviously a few cities, which is all less exciting than pirates, but he is associated with a few pirate things, so kind of interesting. Anyway, back to the pirates of the Hellenistic period. I mentioned when Alexander died, his successors were apt to use shipborne mercenaries, a departure from the way Alexander handled things. These mercenaries only being mercenaries since they were hired to be uh, hired by these successors would undoubtedly have been parading as pirates at the time. Some of the accounts of these pirates included describing their ships. Uh, these ships were not like most of the trireme galley types. Uh, the trireme being a, a ship with three levels of oars on either side, right? Uh, these ships are the most iconic of the ancient Greek ships. And if you've seen the movie Troy, you've seen these ships. The ships the pirates are said to have used were described by Diodorus Siculus, or Sicilus, I don't know, who knows. Uh, ancient Greek historian from the 1st century BCE, 
He described them as deckless ships, which were faster and more maneuverable, I assume only because of the lesser weight. This guy wrote down quite a bit, but only a few books remain. Still very impressive that any of it exists at all. Now, the ship that is similar to the ships Diodorus describes was found in the 1960s, and it's kind of cool to look at. The ship was a merchant vessel, but there was a slew of spears stuck inside it, suggesting foul play. There's also a curse tablet, which was actually not super uncommon for the time. The researchers who found this ship suggest that the pirates may have used it to essentially cover their tracks. Now, as the Greek states fought for foothold over the Aegean and the Mediterranean, there's a power building in the west. Before Rome really took over though, Rhodes took the power of the navy from the Athenians. And the Athenians were the naval power of the Grecian states for a long time, but then, you know, Rhodes took over. And Rhodes is an island and had five major ports on it. And the islands around Rhodes all kind of banded together to create this uh, pseudo naval police to help curb piracy which made their ports a little more um, appealing to those who were interested in trading. Another thing they did was orienting the ports for the visitors specifically, so certain ships from certain areas would go into certain ports on this island. They wouldn't always go to the same, you know, one port, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, with being so, uh, so focused on so many ports, they had to have a focus on preventing piracy because, you know, piracy threatened their tariff money in at some point, right? So now, I mentioned the slow go growth of the Roman Empire, and really they did not attempt to become a major naval power as, it, as they were 100% known for their land conquests, but some instances forced their hand, pushed them to take over as a naval power within the Mediterranean, but it would be a slow process. The small original instances of the Roman Navy has its roots in combating piracy. Uh, the original fleet consisted of seized vessels from the conquest of Campania, I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced because it's in the Italian peninsula. Experts believe that these ships were used to combat piracy of their coasts as they expanded. This navy was beaten by the Tarentines in 282 BC and continued to be less impressive but continued to fight the good fight against pirates around the Italian coasts and, you know, in rivers and such. But by six, uh, 167 BCE, Rome had a plan to steal the business of the Rhodes ports instituting what is essentially a duty-free port to steal the business on an island called Delos, which is in the heart of those islands I mentioned earlier that were all combating piracy. This this port had, you know, low tariffs, low taxes, so people started flocking to it and thus cut a big hole in Rhodes's business. Tax money Rhodes was getting dropped from an apparent 1 million drachmas to 150,000 within one year's time. So create an influx of pirates with, um, you know, when Rose was moved as removed as a power, a naval power, uh, this vacuum created more piracy. So, not exactly a win-win, but definitely, you know, beat the competition kind of win. Uh, when Rome conquered Macedonia in the Third Macedonian War, they got into another war against the Seleucid Empire. Following this, they would drive out the former Hellenistic navy, and once and once they defeated Carthage, it was pretty much all over. But the crying in the Mediterranean, they had control over all the coastline of the Mediterranean and with this did not need a massive naval presence and by the uh, by the end of the second century BCE but this is not the story of the Roman Navy or naval power in general but you know it's pirates so let's get you know let's move on to another icon coming face to face with some pirates Julius Caesar remember him he's that guy that makes the pizza that tastes like rubber if you leave it out for too long no 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 wait 
not him. But I'm sure he would be impressed by the, <laughs> by the coma that it would put him in if he ate a piece. Anyway, in 75 BCE, Caesar was captured by Cilician pirates. Remember that name, because they'll come up again. And you're probably sitting there going, Hey man, I thought you said Rome dominated the whole Mediterranean now. So why are there pirates? First off, great question. Thank you for asking. Secondly, bribery. See, some of these pirates would offer captured slaves to the senators, which, as you probably know, were the real powers of the Ro Roman Republic. Buying their freedom with human cargo is probably not considered to be cool these days, but totally fine back then. So, a young, 25 years young Caesar, to be specific, was on his way to Rhodes to study. And according to Plutarch, who is the name in Roman history, and you're probably like, wow, these pirates literally sold humans for their freedom and probably pretty ruthless, and this spells trouble for the littlest of Caesars. And you'd be wrong. Apparently, this was essentially comparable to being redirected while driving around a town on a detour for Caesar. This dude was not even remotely bothered by them, and maybe it was because he knew they were expecting a big payday and would not actually hurt him. Regardless, Julius, Julie, Jules, for starters, laughed in their faces when they told him that they set uh, his ransom for 20 talents. If you're curious what a talent is, I'm with you. I found one kind, gentle person on Reddit describing a talent of Roman silver to be uh, 32,300 sesterces, and that is the plural form of sesters, and one of those could buy a couple loaves of bread at the time. Uh, so to put that in perspective, Roman legionnaires were paid 900 sesterces a year. So one silver talent paid 35 of Rome's finest for a year. How does this compare? Well, one talent of silver back then would be like paying millions to the same amount of soldiers, uh, modern soldiers. What does this all mean? It means that Julius Caesar thought the idea of these pirates asking for the salary of 700 Roman legionnaires was hilarious and he counter-offered. He looked these pirates in the windows of their soul and said, you clearly don't know who I am or what kind of pizza they will make in my honor in 2,000 years. And he told them to ask for 50 talents of silver. This freaking guy, a, Rome, a full Roman legion was 5,000 men. Julius Caesar said that he was worth 35% of a full legion's yearly pay. Talk about the mother of all scores for these pirates. On top of this upcharge, Caesar sent out his own men to get the money. So recapping this little bit of time that he spent with the pirates so far. He was captured. They said they were going to ask a crazy amount of money. He said, you're all morons. Ask for more than double. In fact, you're all incompetent. I'm going to have my men go get the money for you. And if that wasn't enough, while he waited for his crew to return with the money, he would be <laughs> spend his time bossing the pirates around, forcing them to listen to him, orate speeches and poems he's writing, play games with them, work out with them, all while continuing to treat them as if they worked for him. He even threatened them all with crucifixion when he was freed. And the pirates had their turn at laughing at him this time. And he was with them for almost 40 days and the money was paid, which probably made these dudes' minds explode with all that silver. When he was freed, Caesar promptly assembled a little navy force in Miletus, which is on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And the fact that he did that while not having an official military title or public position is kind of hilarious, almost pirate-like in of itself. After that, he traveled to the island with his new armada and found the pirates that were still there, and he captured them this time, bringing them back to the local governor, and this guy was like wishy-washy about the punishment, and I think Caesar got impatient and just went to the prison, and then in fact did crucify them. <laughs> so say what you want about old Jules, but he's a man of his word. So pirates in Roman waters mostly hailed from Cilicia, which is what I mentioned earlier, and Illyria. The Illyrian pirates used a boat called the Limbus which is a broad term to describe many types of boats, kind of how like the galley is 
describing a lot of the Roman and Greek ships. But it's a smaller type of boat. Little, It's pretty maneuverable. And it's notable for their loose uh, use of a low freeboard, which is the distance between the water and the upper deck. And usually had around 50 or so men. Uh, and most of them who are rowing at the time. So very limited, like, free space. Other ships used for light raiding and attacks were on the... Other ships used for light raiding and attacks on other vessels were ones like the Liberna, which is similar style to the Lembus, but both can be seen on carvings and coins from the 2nd and 1st century, which tells us, you know, how popular they were. All of these ships are, like I mentioned, galley-like, so the Roman and Greek ships you see in movies it would have been kind of just variations of that style, because everybody in the Med was stealing from one another in both physical things and then also ideas, so... Some people fitted them with rams to crash in enemy ships, other would give them bigger sails, but they all generally had that galley shape. And while for a while these pirates were able to pay off Roman senators with all their slave trading, uh, they did eventually bite off more than they could chew. Or there were too many pirates doing the damn thing, and they soon were making more concern with Rome than anyone would ever like to do. Pirate blockade formed in the 1st century BCE, causing many roman citizens to fear for starvation which is obviously never good this kind of plays into the fact of did pirates really hurt the people that they were like of the countries they were attacking well in this case it definitely seemed like they might have so the roman senate finally took measures to combat piracy i heard a man named pompey and no not the same as pompey was put forward uh to you know fight against these pirates the Senate approved of his nomination by a friend, and this gave Pompey some major power and tools to deal with the menace, right? Passing a law called Lex Gabina de Piratas Persequendis, or the Gabinian Law on Pursuing Pirates in 67 BCE. Pompey was a popular guy, and especially popular among the non-noble class of Roman, a real people's champ, as it were. So much so that the Senate really didn't want to give him any power, but they also wanted to get rid of the pirates. So, Sophie's choice. While senators fear, feared another dictator coming to power, the people feared the physical loss of food and gold from the pirates. So, now that Pompey has a great fleet and an army to the tune of 270 warships, 120,000 infantry, and 4,000 cavalry, now these numbers vary source to source, but you know, the infantry kind of remains unchanged. They also gave him 144 million sesterces. Uh, and remember, one could buy two loaves of bread, and 32,000 could pay for the salary of one legionnaire for a full year. So, Senate gave this man three years' time to complete this task, and he did it in a couple months. How did he do this? Well, let's call our buddy, our old bloody, old bloody buddy, uh, Plutarch, to tell us. He says, he divided the waters and adjacent coasts of the Mediterranean seas into 13 districts and assigned to each a certain number of ships with a commander and with his forces thus scattered in all quarters, he encompassed the whole fleets of piratical ships that fell in his way and straightway hunted them down and brought others into port. Others succeeded in dispersing and escaping and sought their hive, as it were, hurrying from all quarters into Cilicia. Against these, Pompey intended to proceed in person with his 60 best ships. He did not, however, sail against them until he had entirely cleared of their pirates. The Tyrrhenian Sea, the Libyan Sea, and the sea about Sardinia, Corsica, and Sicily in 40 days all told. This was owing to his own tireless energy and zeal of his lieutenants. Now, Plutarch's one of the people that I mentioned that says that he had more ships and cavalry, but either way, 
Essentially, what he created was an organized naval rotation and patrol. He stuck people that he trusted in valuable places like the Strait of Gibraltar, Corsica, the Aegean Sea, the mouth of the Black Sea, Cyprus, Africa, all over. He cleaned up half of the Med in 40 days and then the other half in another 40. Methods of capturing said pirates are discussed further by Plutarch, saying that a big chunk of the pirates would surrender and beg for mercy, and his forces would grant them mercy. So, more and more pirates would surrender after hearing that they weren't being just slaughtered. Maybe they saw the writing on the wall, who knows? It is kind of funny to think of how meticulous and organized the Roman armies were, and that it was just utter chaos in the seas until this point. Now, the victories of Pompey, according to the records in Alexandria, go as follows. 71 captured ships. 306 ships destroyed, 120 cities and forts captured, 10,000 pirates killed, and 20,000 pirates were spared when they begged for mercy. It really was a big change for how the Roman Navy approached piracy, but piracy was not done. It did not disappear after these impressive victories. Even Pompey's own son took to piracy and had his own pirate fleet. After the death of Caesar and subsequent fight for power between Cleopatra, Mark Antony, Octavian, in 31 BCE, Rome found itself wanting slaves once again, and thus the Cilician pirates came back into the fold with slaves to trade. However, this partnership, they were not really causing harm to Rome itself anymore. Actually, were essentially working for them, which turned them into very early instances of privateers. The main bulk of piracy in Rome was limited to for another 250 some odd years. Around 258 CE, there's a new group of pirates that had been causing trouble around the Black Sea. The Goths, and no, 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 stop it, get help, is not a bunch of pale ladies in fishnets and scary makeup, as much as we would all like it to be, no. And as I wrote that joke, I wondered how often that type of joke has been made about these people. You know, they would never have any idea that one day their names would also be used by a group of people who are really into the cure of Depeche Mode. Super wild. Anyway, <laughs> the Goths began to dip their toes into Roman waters around 250 CE, as I mentioned, and made their way towards Cyprus and Crete, some of their escapades. Other groups began using piracy to attack the mighty Roman Empire, like the early Franks and Saxon pirates. Most of these would continue as the full empire began to splinter and fall. While we won't talk about the full collapse, it is a good idea to consider the fallout from it when, uh, when moving forward. With some of these defeats mounting, my, uh, major migration from neighboring areas, fleeing the troubles of their homelands gave them, food shortages, changes in social structure, and large-scale corruption, and moral bleakness, all these things kind of culminated in an empire divided and changed how things were done in different areas. To quell instability in such a vast empire, Diocletian decided to split up the empire in 286 CE, uh, different sections having their different decreed leaders and hope that it would stabilize the fractured empire. But eventually, the full empire would split into two, the west and the east. The east became the Byzantine Empire and outlived the west by, you know, a thousand years. And the west contains modern-day Spain, France, Germany, uh, Britain, Croatia, Bosnia, Hungary, those kinds of things. The east made up of Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey, Middle East nations, and a big chunk of North Africa. With all that going on, the next section would be the Dark Ages or the Early Middle Ages. The Dark Ages are... You know, the post-antiquity times, usually dating from the fall of Rome proper in the 5th century to the Renaissance in the 15th century. With this time frame, the written accounts are more and more landlocked places, uh, more prevalent because instead of it being more Mediterranean-centric, we had, you know, learning and writing evolving in the areas that were once Germanic tribes. 
These places advance past their so-called barbarian ways and documenting more of their lives. With that, there are more land struggles and less focus on the water. Since the Byzantine Empire held a strong foothold on the major water system in Europe at the time. Not to say there was no battles on the water that happened at all, but it was much more limited. And a lot of this information has also been lost to time. Like the record's just gone. But most of these examples mirror prior ones. So small little things here and there. The west, of, uh, the west end of the Roman Empire shifted and contorted into the kingdoms that would be the ones typically learned about in the Middle Ages. The west deteriorated throughout the 5th and 6th century. The coasts of those former places lost the protection of their navy and were susceptible to raiding, but were more focused, were more, but were more focused on the turmoil that, over their land, each group trying to gain their own slice of Rome's former glory. From the ashes rose kingdoms of Germanic barbarian tribes like the Franks, the Soissons, the Saxons, the Visigoths, and the Vandals. One thing that did unite these eventually was the spread of the Christian religion throughout them. The Franks eventually became the power in which Charlemagne would take a hold and thus be appointed by the Pope and essentially created the epitome of the Christian kingdoms we think about when we think of medieval Europe. It was these times that the world got more compartmentalized with Western Europe becoming secluded due to the Arabian Kingdom's prevention of uh, the use of their roads and routes. So while Charlemagne conquered Western Europe, he was not only solidified the Christian religion, but also you know, helped create a system in which land was given to different followers and tax money given to the crown in return. And just as he did this in the Frankish Empire, the Saxons would do the same in Britain. And as the word of God spread, towns began to be more and more funded, and there's monasteries near them. And these churches also would now be full of gold because that's where they kept it and mostly located on the banks of river for easy access for commerce but also as as these kingdoms as it were evolved they moved more inward because they didn't need to go to the sea so you had these monasteries that were kind of left out out in by by the water and made it so that they were removed from typical like king castles and all these things because you needed that distance for them to be pure and, you know, have their peace, right? And all of these things would spell trouble for the inhabitants of these locations. By 793 in the northern section of the British Isles, Saxons had a similar method of their systems and churches and monasteries of the Franks that the Franks did, one of which, the monastery at Lindisfarne, was built on a small island that had remains buried of St. Cuthbert. Cuthbert? I don't know. It's a weird name. I don't like it. <laughs> uh, it was also the foothold of the revitalization of the Christian message in Northumbria or Northern England. Uh, apparently, it's one of it was one of the oldest you know monasteries at the time. But the region was struggling. All right. So there's writings of famine and even some tales of dragons flying about, and all of this would kind of pale in comparison to the threat that was about to show up and also mythologize a lot of the events that they were describing before. Now on a June day, this quaint monastery off the coast of modern-day Bamberg would be visited by pagan seafaring warriors that we now refer to pretty much entirely as Vikings. The Northmen, Danes, Pagans, or Heathens would be their names in those days, and you might wonder why I included them in this episode, but if you know your history, then you know how well the actions of these people line up with pirates. Viking even has its roots in an old Norse word for raiding, which sometimes is translated into pirate. And what 
what's more is that they were not solely dependent on warfare on the sea. They, for the mo for most of their days, were farming and fishing. The shipborne attacks saw them traveling to places along coasts at first, smashing and grabbing and stealing treasures, uh, before leaving and returning to their regular lives in Scandinavia. They were often in the summer because that was the time where they really didn't have a whole lot of things to do. You're waiting on crops to grow and animals can be, you know, pretty well well off by their, by themselves. So they would come in the summer. And this raid was in the summer of 793, right? So June, as I mentioned. So this raid in 793 was not the first account of their activity, but it would be the beginning of a long turbulent time for the people of Northumbria, Francia, and other parts of Europe. Descriptions of the attack on Lindisfarne are not thorough, mainly because there was not a lot of dedication to detail back then, not a whole lot of true crime enthusiasts. So we're stuck with what they did right. Uh, but a scholar named Alquin, who was tutoring Charlemagne's children at the time, corresponded to a bishop who was from Lindisfarne, and these two, between, betwixt them, as it were, uh, <laughs> described the aftermath as the Church of St. Cuthbert, Cuthbert is spattered with the blood of the priests, uh, uh, priests of God, stripped of all its furnishings, exposed to plundering of the pagans. He also described the monks being, you know, trampled after being slaughtered, like, there's no respect for the dead. This was seen as a tragedy to the lovers of the faith, islands known as Holy Island, and its importance was known throughout the kingdoms around. Some even speculate that this attack was, you know, so random and violent that perhaps the Norsemen sought revenge. It's even indication that Charlemagne interacted and fought the Danes off in land skirmishes as he expanded his Frankish empire north. The fact that there had been some Norsemen documented traveling down the coast and what seemed to be trading missions a few times before this event occurred made some believe that this was revenge. Charlemagne had a convert or die policy and style with dealing with pagans, so that is where the idea kind of stems from. Others speculate that these early mentioned accounts could have been the Vikings casing the joints, essentially, checking to see where they could sneak into, get the most bang for their buck in terms of raiding. And maybe a full episode on them deserves to be done at some point, but right now we'll just continue on the pirating tactics of the Vikings. So now that we know they really did not just appear from the icy northern European waters unannounced, but really made their presence more and more known and more and more hostile, we can move on to what they did and how they did it. See, the Danes loved themselves a good longbow. And this is the boat, if you're imagining it, like a Viking ship, the low deck, the wide and... Uh, which like had a wide stance, also very spacious. It it seemed giving room for different like all of the different travelers on it. Right, they were also shallow, so they could maneuver in shallow waters and beach. You know, land on the beach very easily. They like many of the galleys and boats used before use a combination of sail and rowing power. And some even say that the design of the Viking longboat might have evolved from designs of early iterations of them interacting with the Romans in like the British Isles way before, right? There are a few surviving vessels of such construction, such as the Gokstag ship, which shows a perfectly preserved ship that was found in a bur burial mound in Norway dating back to like the 9th century B uh, CE, 9th century CE, not BCE. There are several sizes and types of ships that feature different construction methods, but in general, they're all known by how many rowing benches they could, uh, they feature. The Carvey, featuring 6 to 16 rowing benches and is, you know, the smallest can, that is to be considered a longship, 
mostly been used for fishing and trade. The Sneka, which is a snake, obviously, had been had at least 20 rowing benches and could carry about 41 men, and is also the most common type. The Skeed had more than 30 rowing benches, and some carried upwards of 80 men that could be, you know, 100 more feet long. And the Drakkar or the Dragon are the ones that we only know about uh, from historical sources, haven't actually found one yet, uh, archaeologist-wise. The ship I mentioned er earlier, the Gokstag ship, was actually even replicated, and the new ship called the Viking was even sailed across the Atlantic to the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago from Norway, which is a fun fact that just goes to show you know, how well the design worked. It also kind of a glimpse to prove that the Vikings would have been able to do so and discover the new world as many finally, you know, have been begun to conclude after, you know, years of debate. But anyway, back to the action. After 793, things began to ramp up, right? While the first raid occurred in 793, there's a couple actionable deaths at the hands of Danes in the kingdoms of lower Europe. Um, like in 789, a party of three ships maybe landed in the wrong spot due to weather. Nobody really knows, but uh, they were intercepted by the King of Wessex, Reeve, and they killed that guy <laughs> immediately. <laughs> so, not great. Um, word reached the other places, other kingdoms, places like Charlemagne's Frankish kingdom, began setting defenses on the coast. Meanwhile, Danes now knew that building similar to the one in Lindisfarne held potential, uh, major potential, few people to fight and a lot of treasure to take. Uh, every summer, they would travel down, hunt for the secluded and often unguarded monasteries before uh, tactics began to be done to try and protect these sanctuaries. And while there are, not a, there are not detailed accounts of every single one, we have a pretty good list to go off of. Uh, they would go to Iona, Scotland and attack, then Ireland for the first time in 795. By 799, they would raid on the Frankish coast, uh, which put Charlemagne on high alert for building defenses. And these fortifications would be successful in repelling them, but in 14, time, uh, 14 years' time, he would have died, and with him, fall out in organization and determination. Charlemagne also gave men from the north an access of ease by way of the Frisian coastline, which was part of northern Germany and part of the North Netherlands as well. Charlemagne had destroyed the Frisian fleet, leaving them defenseless after this victory. Not really good foresight on his part. And then after his death, uh, he only had one son who outlived him, and that was Lu Louis the Pious, which I want to say Louis the Pious or Louis the Pui because the, of the similarity in the letters in those names. I know they're not spelled exactly the same, but this anyway. Uh, that guy, his son, died in 840, and then his three sons were constantly at each other's throats, you know, splitting his former kingdom in sections. And all this happening while the Vikings, you know, continued to raid in Europe, utilizing the deep river systems like the Rhine and the Seine to travel inside modern-day France and Germany. In 810, Frisia would be attacked by Danish King Godfred. In that time, uh, Viking groups would attack Iona, Scotland two additional times. Uh, in 812, a band of Danes founded the city of Limerick in modern-day Ireland while, plund while plundering a monastery, which they would continue attacking for a few hundred years. Just, <laughs> we're just going to keep at it because you guys keep refilling this one. So let's go. <laughs> not, not great, I guess. Uh, I would just maybe just use a different monastery at that point. I don't know. Anyway, uh, they were quiet for a few years before really ramping up in 832. 
force of 100 uh, reported 120 ships raided and attacked Armagh in Ireland and then they raided this town three times in a month which again bro I would maybe stop sent well I guess we're dead travel super slow back then but you'd think they'd be like all right send the fastest guys you know the fastest horses tell them to go to all the places and tell them to stop sending shit to this place because they keep getting messed up anyway basically the entire entirety of the 830s was really bad for Ireland <laughs> and the churches within them uh, they would repay Ireland by founding the city of Dublin in eight, uh, by 840 which is kind of neat and then Vikings would go ahead with uh, go head to head with King Egbert of Wessex in 836 causing him to retreat and then again in 838 but then he would be victorious victorious however you want to pronounce that word this time because the amount of different clans and places that the Vikings were hailing from all with different goals and uh, you know missions explains why it was so chaotic for the pseudo organized kingdoms they attacked they were not a unified force but a bunch of like guerrilla forces attacking in different places you know for the most part anyway by 843 three years after the passing of charlemagne's heir vikings were now reigning parts of france these raids got closer and closer to paris and there's so-called barbarians at the gate you know as it were and and the vikings were paid a handsome ransom to leave paris in 845 this army was supposedly led by uh, the mythologized Ragnar Lothbrook, and they were paid 5.6 thousand pounds in gold and silver, which I had seen estimates putting the equivalent of value at uh, like today's money at 57 million dollars. But I don't know; it doesn't it doesn't work straight like that because the metals were worth more to the people back then than they are now. Like I don't know; it's very complicated, but it just doesn't work that that well. So 57 million dollars on the low end. And it wasn't just Christian nations that the Vikings were attacking. Uh, they were defeated by Muslim armies in Spain in 844. And I guess the rapid defense in which they used to prevent the Vikings from attacking them was what scared them away. So they're not focused on strictly just Europe either. Vikings associated with Western Europe were, you know, Danish and uh, Norwegian. But the Swedish Vikings would go down through the eastern end and end up in the Balkans and modern day Russia. Through these escapades, they went down through the Eastern Bloc and even made it to Constantinople. That's right, good old Rome, uh, Eastern Roman Empire even had to deal with these dudes. In 860, they scorched villages uh, along the coast leading towards the city and escaping with their winnings and not even stepping foot in the city. Later on, a different group of Vikings would be paid guards for Constantinople, which is kind of interesting. Uh, legendary Northman Bjorn Ironside raided into the Mediterranean with fellow Dane Haston, even capturing the town of Pisa of Leaning Tower fame. Anybody? They also made it to a place they believed was Rome and put uh, pulled some good old-fashioned trickeration by telling the local bishop that Haston had died and converted to Christianity and wanted to be buried with proper rites. They brought his body into the city via coffin, and then he leapt from the coffin and slaughtered a bunch of people, making his way to the gates, letting all his friends in. Now, it's probably more legend than fact, but it makes for a fun story nonetheless. Either way, he allegedly killed the bishop by either chopping his head off or stabbing him in the neck, you know, while his friends sacked the city of Luna. Correct. Not Rome, still pretty exciting. Uh... Other Vikings continued to raid parts of North Africa, the Mideast, and Russia, while others like Ragnar 
uh, ended up being killed by 865. Legend is that this spurned a massive invasion known as the Great Heathen Army arriving and capturing York. By this time, they were no longer just summer expeditions, not really weekend warriors anymore. This was turning into full-scale invasions, which I suppose makes it less piratical and more just war. So just to summarize this a bit, Great Heathen Army invaded Northumbria, killing a few different kings and installing puppet leaders in different places. By 9-11, different kingdoms were beginning to learn to work with or just appease the Viking forces. Rollo, a Viking, was given uh, given rule to a new kingdom named Normandy or the Land of the Northmen. This was a partnership that would give the French an ally against Viking invaders following his siege of Paris. Defeats mounting against the Viking invaders in England caused more and more of them to travel further down into the Med once again. Pausing efforts of, of their attacks in the British Isles, a lot of different grabs for power combined with the exhausted efforts and land granting would bring the uh, would simmer the violence brought by the men of the north. Other groups around this time, consisting of the Moors from Muslim lands like Spain, began to raid southern France and northern Italy. Some come from Crete, even raided the Mediterranean. Tribes from the ashes of the Ro former Roman era Illyrian pirates uh, began to resurrect tactics from the same area. Norentines began raiding the Adriatic coasts and ramped up their efforts, causing trouble for the Venetian navy through the 11th century. Slavic piracy also grew in the Baltic Sea and was only strengthened by the Rus Vikings that came from the Swedish side of Scandinavia. In fact, Slavic piracy mostly fell after Danish forces conquered Ar Arcona 1168. Not eliminating piracy completely, but obviously it was reduced to a very small level of crime for a while, and honestly not everyone considers even Vikings to be pirates. I think it might be because of the full-scale invasions later on, but in my opinion, with all the small-scale smash and grabs that they did for a couple hundred years, those actions seem more pirate-like, in my opinion. And if it seems like I'm wrapping up, it's because I am. This episode ended up being more than enough for two episodes, and it could be its own series, really. So we're leaving pirates in the mid-12th century. We'll continue next week with more pirate lore. Exciting stuff, because if you know your history, after the 12th century, naval combat gets intense. Gunpowder, global travel, people never met before intermingling. Larger ships, even. There's no remedial rants in this episode. I will save that for the full wrap-up. But some things I found interesting this week. Uh, the Sea People in the Bronze Age. I recently joined one of those RPG pages on Facebook where everybody pretends to be something. This one is people pretending to be from the Bronze Age. And so, so many references to the Sea People that I now understand and have references for. So that's exciting. Also, how small the world was in Hellenistic and Antiquity. Like, the Roman Empire was massive, but not a lot of, like, world exploration outside of it. And the lack of documentation by other societies makes it even smaller. Also, how wild Julius Caesar was to be a captive and bark orders at the pirates holding him hostage. And how big a pain in the ass the Danes were to most of Europe at the time. So much fighting within those places already, grabs for power, and then, bam, you know. Out come these giant Scandinavian bastards riding ships that look like dragons. It had to be tough. But that's it for this week. Next week we'll cover the pirates of the China Sea, along with uh, and the long history that can that comes with them. European ones as well, as well as the development of larger ships for further travels out to other continents and such. Those damn Portuguese always exploring stuff. Just kidding, obviously. 
Uh, thank you for continuing to rate and review the show at all the locations possible. Remember, if you'd like to hear a topic, go to the socials. Facebook is probably the easiest, but you can also email me at, at remedialscholar at gmail.com. Uh, follow me all over the place. Check out, you know, small history related merch I have on the link tree. And check out my other podcast, West of Nowhere, if you want to stay up to date on depressing news. And that's it. Thank you. We'll see you next time.